Well, good morning, faith family. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 will be our text this morning. We are uh, finishing up this morning our series on the church is a big deal. And we've been taking five weeks in the month of November uh, to look at the importance of the church. And uh, my hope is that after this series, there is no doubt in your mind as to the importance the Bible places on the local assembly of Christians together. And so this morning, we're going to look at the church one last time, uh, and we're going to look at the church and her unity here in Ephesians chapter 2. And so um, if you're able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's Word. Yes, even those of you out in the commons, um, we're crowded, aren't we? We got people who are sitting out in the commons, and we just want you to know we are we are working for solutions, and just praise God um, that we are growing leaps and bounds and thankful that God has brought you here. And just, can I just encourage you, be patient as we, um, as we come up with solutions to deal with uh, the space issue that we have. Ephesians chapter 2, um, let's look at verse 11. We'll read down through verse 16, uh, even though we'll look all the way through the end of the chapter Um, Verse 11, Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity we have now to worship You uh, as we study Your Word, as we think about uh, the importance of Your people. Lord, I ask that You would, uh, Holy Spirit, come teach us lead us to these things, and um, Lord, would you make much of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the comic strips that I enjoyed when I was a little boy was Calvin and Hobbes. Any Calvin and Hobbes fans? A few of you. If you're not familiar with the comic strip, it's about a a six-year-old, very adventurous little boy, as most six-year-old boys are, named Calvin, and his sarcastic tiger friend named Hobbes. And in one particular episode, Calvin is unable to sleep. There's something on his mind that he is just perplexed by. I I don't know if you've ever had one of those nights where something so important is on your mind, you just cannot go to sleep. Well, Calvin's unable to sleep, and so he yells out for his mom. His mom comes in the room. She's in her gown, half asleep, has kind of a worried look on her face, and Ask Calvin what's wrong, and Calvin proceeds to let her in on this question that has kept him awake. 
he asked, How do ugly things like octopuses and hairy bugs reproduce? Are they actually attracted to each other? Realizing that this is why her son woke her up in the middle of the night, mom replies, it's 3 a.m., go to sleep. Some parents can relate, I'm sure. She leaves the room. Calvin's mind is still perplexed, and he, he thinks about this question even more. In fact, he ponders it even further, and he says, come to think of it, I wonder how people are attracted to each other. And Hobbes chimes in, I'll bet that's why they close their eyes when they smooch. (laughs) Now, I give you that illustration not because we're here this morning to discuss the reproductive habits of hairy bugs, or human beings for that matter. I pose that illustration to you because I think Calvin is on to something. Calvin raises a question that we need to think about, namely, what brings people together? And more specifically, what brings us together? We had over 2,000 people that will come into this building this weekend. Why are we here? And if you look around, you'll see everything from an 80-year-old to an 18-year-old, from blue-collar to white-collar, from people that grew up in a church home to people who didn't grow up in a church home, people who have a higher economic status than others. You have different people who are all coming together, and the question is, why? Is it because we're attractive? Is because we're just really beautiful people. What brings us together? Friends, I ask us this question because the unity of the church, what brings the church together is not a marginal issue in the Bible. In fact, I would submit to you, and we will learn from this text, that Christian unity, the unity of the church, has everything to do with our faith in Jesus Christ and our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 2. And listen, he's writing these words, I need to remind you, to a local church gathered in a geographic area known as Ephesus. And he writes to them about their unity. He writes to them about what brings them together as a people. And the first thing he does is addresses the problem. In the verses that we just read a few moments ago, the Apostle Paul addresses the division between Jew and Gentile. Now, we've addressed this in other sermons. If you've been around church for very long, you know that Jews and Gentiles did not get along. It was a deeply held hostility. It was bigger than like Mac versus PC or any sports rivalry that you may have or follow. Uh, the, The simplest way for me to even get close is to think of segregation in the 1950s. Or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we even still see today. 
There was a deep-rooted hostility and hatred between Jew and Gentile, and it was birthed out of a religious hostility, a religious separation. You see, the Jews were the chosen people of God. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God chose the nation of Israel. And the Apostle Paul here in verse 11 through 12 gives us a summary of this kind of religious gap between Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 11, remember, writing to Gentiles here, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and by the way, that's all of us unless you're Jewish, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, nothing makes a Bible study more uncomfortable than when you bring up circumcision. I mean, just try that out in your small group and say, hey, I just really like to talk about circumcision while we meet tonight. People will be like, how about not, right? It's, we're like, how do, we, how do we deal with this? And yet we see it often in the Bible. So often we don't understand how to think about what was a very important theological thing in the Old Testament. God promised that he was going to send a Messiah. In fact, we're about to celebrate this as we think about Christmas time. He's going to send a seed, a Messiah, an anointed one, and he's going to send that Messiah through the people of Israel. So he gives them a sign, and I won't be too graphic, but intentionally placed. We'll just leave it at that. To remind the Jewish people that their promise rested completely on this coming of a child, this birth of a Messiah. And so they were constantly reminded of God's promise that would come through them. The Apostle Paul is saying to Gentiles, you were not a part of that. The Messiah was not going to come through you. You were called the uncircumcision, not the circumcision. And then verse 12, remember you were at times separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That, that is, you were outside the people of God and strangers to the covenants of promise. Who did God give the promises to in the Old Testament? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. He didn't give it to Norwegians or Swedes or Americans or, or any. It was given to the people of God and you were not a part of the people of God at that point. And then he says, resulting in what? Having no hope and without God in the world. So can you see the, like this gap, this separation, this hostility between Jew and Gentile. And this religious hostility poured over into a relational hostility because Jews made themselves superior. I mean, after all, we're the people of God. And the Gentiles felt inferior. And so then there grew like this relational hatred. Jews thought Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. How's that for a Hallmark greeting, right? Happy birthday, burn in. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's exactly what they thought. They called them uncircumcised dogs. They would not help a Gentile woman give birth. After all, from their perspective, why would you want to help another heathen come into the world? 
If they had been walking through a Gentile territory before they would cross back over into their land, they would dust all the dirt off their shoes so as not to defile their own land. They wouldn't let them in the temple. And don't think I'm just picking on the Jewish people. The Gentiles were no better. They thought Jews were barbarians, mutilators of the flesh, and they mocked and ridiculed their religious practices. Here's my point, beloved. They had absolutely nothing in common whatsoever. Now, most of us have not experienced that kind of hostility. Like, I hope I didn't just describe your Thanksgiving dinner, right? (laughs) We don't deal with that level of hostility, but listen to me, I I bet every one of us in this room has a type of person or a group of people that we don't like to associate with. They don't believe what we believe. They don't look the way we look. They don't act the way we act. It may be a political group. It may be music preference. It may be skin color. It may be an economic status. It may be a denomination. It may be personality types. This is not just a Jew-Gentile thing. This is a humanity problem. Namely, we have a tendency to simply associate with the people who are most like us, which is really interesting in a world that's all about, man, just give peace a chance, peace a chance, you know? All we need is love and, and, and we are family. I got all my sisters and me, whatever, you know? It's all about, man, can't we just hug and all get along? We're all saying we want peace and yet look around, you rarely see it. Or at least you don't see it for very long. And why is that? Well, here's how the Bible answers the question. James tells us in James chapter 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have So you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, look right here. The reason why we deal with relational hostility is a three-letter word called sin. Sin is what has separated you from God, and sin is what is separating you from other people. Are you hearing me? Think about your life right now. It may be family, it may be friendships, it may be in the church, but what is separating you from other people and isolating you from others is sin. It is why nations rage. It is why families fight. It is why Christians bicker because at the heart of conflict is sin, and sin is at the heart of us all. And it made Jews self righteous and Gentiles judgmental, and there was this enormous hostility. So, what's the solution? Anger management, education, better communication skills. Those might be helpful, but that's not the solution the Bible gives us. In fact, before we look at the solution in verses 13 and 14, we need to go back to notice the word therefore that's in verse 11, because I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul is continuing an argument from verses 1 through 10. Follow along. The flow of thought is this. 
Listen, Ephesians, you were at one time dead in your trespasses of sin, but you are now, you've been made alive in Jesus Christ by the power of God. And this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, that's true of you. And not only that, the Apostle Paul says that you were by nature children of wrath, but you have now been seated in the heavenly places. Why? Because of the grace of Almighty God. In other words, the argument is you have a hostility problem, but the first and most important hostility problem you have is not between other people, it's between you and God. And do you know what brought that reconciliation? Do you know what brought peace? Do you know what brought you from death to life? The cross. Jesus Christ died for the sin that separated you from God. And when you put your faith in him, you are brought to a place of peace with him. Therefore, you not only have a hostility problem between God, you have a hostility problem between one another, Jew and Gentile. So what's the solution for you? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and, see this, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser, namely, hear me, if the cross was big enough to bring reconciliation to God, the cross is big enough to bring reconciliation to you. Marriages, are you listening? Friendships? church feuds, if the cross is big enough to bring peace with God, you'd better believe the cross is big enough to bring peace to your broken relationships, no matter how great the hostility may be. Because the argument is this, follow, 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 it's this. If what separates you from your brother, from your sister is sin, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin, and you're in Christ, and they're in Christ, how can there be division any longer? Your unity has everything to do with the gospel. Your unity has everything to do with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Which means this, friends, unity is maintained, and this is primarily being applied to the church, though it's applied to other areas as well, unity is maintained where the cross is ultimate. When Jesus is exalted, you cannot exclude a brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because He has purchased your peace. He is your peace. Your unity is not a skin color. It's not a a worship style. It's not a denominational name out on a sign. Your unity, our unity, is a crucified and resurrected man named Jesus Christ. 
And brother, that better be what brings us together. If there is anything of any importance happening in this place, it better be because we are here because we are attracted not to one another. We're attracted to Jesus Christ and the work of the gospel, and that's what brings us together. Can I get an amen? Now, can I just say this quickly? Um, a mechanic once told me that the best maintenance is preventative maintenance. So you need to understand that this is not motivated this morning because there is disunity here, and I cannot tell you how thankful I am for that. I really am. I'm thankful that I get to preach this message, not reactionary, but as a way of guarding us because just look around, and I'm so like, it's just crazy. It's crazy what God is doing here, but that makes me nervous. It makes me nervous because do you know where Satan will come at us? He will come at our unity. He will get us sidetracked on things that don't really matter because an implication of he is our peace and he has broken down the wall of hostility, an implication of that is this. When the cross is ultimate in the local church, personal preferences are not. I'm going to get email. I'm going to get in trouble. But that's all right. Happens every week. Not the email, the trouble part. When the cross is ultimate, personal preferences are not. So let me ask you this, and this is really dangerous. What is, don't you dare answer out loud, all right? <laughs> what is it about this church you don't like? What is it? And if you're like, well, there's not anything that I don't like, this is probably your first Sunday here. <laughs> We're not a perfect church. There are, there are things I don't even like. What is it that you don't like? You don't like that we do this, or you don't like that we don't do this. What do you not like? Some of you are like, you know, you can stop writing now. What is it that you really like about this church? You really like that we do this. You really like that we don't do this. I hope you have some answers in your head because the question I want to ask is, do any of those things have anything to do with the gospel? Are any of those things more important to you than the cross? And then don't try the faulty argument like, well, my Bible study had to move to a different room and we're about the gospel. No, the problem is for you, you move to a different room. It's not a gospel problem. Is what you like or dislike, does it have anything to do with the gospel? I had a guy tell me one time at a different church where I was pastoring, he came up to me, just loved, loved the guy. He came up and he said, we need more youth in this church. And I, sure, I Agree, would love to have more youth in this church. And, you know, they're the church of tomorrow and all the things people typically say with that. And then I think it was like a couple months later, the youth praise band did this special music in the morning worship service. And I had a voicemail on Monday morning on my phone. Guess who it was from? Yeah, you guessed it. And guess what the voicemail was about? Blah, 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 rock and roll, and blah, 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 rock and roll, and blah, 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 rock and roll. And that's pretty much the voicemail as I heard it. I have a medical condition called selective hearing. And uh, I called him back and we had a, what was a very gracious conversation. And, and my loving, because the cross was, or the song was absolutely about the cross and, and glorified Jesus. And 
In my conversation with him, I said, a few months ago when you said we needed more youth in this church, what you meant was we need more youth as long as they're like you. And maybe the only part of youth you're implying is the Y-O-U part. In other words, as long as you sing the style of music I like, as long as you dress the way I think you should dress, as long as you on and on and on we can go. But the point is, friends, our unity doesn't have anything to do with that. You don't need the power of the gospel to be unified over those things. Our unity is not when we're comfortable. Our unity is when we're not. But we're willing to forego our comfort because it prompts us to remember that the gospel is more important than me. When the cross is ultimate and He is our peace and He has broken down the wall of hostility, personal preferences cannot be ultimate. And secondly, I want to say that when the cross is ultimate, hear me, the people of God seek actively to reconcile when there's problems. I want to illustrate it this way. I've challenged our our leadership and I'm going to challenge you. Don't be nervous, all right? I'm not going to set anything on fire. That'd be really cool, right? (laughs) Listen, you walk around this place metaphorically just like this. And some of you, it's your family. Some of you, it's your marriage. Some of you, it's work relationships. You walk around in life with two things, a thing of water and a thing of gas. Which means every time you walk into conflict, and I'm not saying that people aren't heard, and I'm not saying that, that... you know, you're not concerned about people's concern. What I am saying is you have an opportunity in every point of conflict, certainly when it comes to the church, to either proactively help reconcile it and put it out or just make it worse. Blow it up a little bit more. Act on that pride. Do what makes you feel good, you see? When the cross is ultimate in your life, when the gospel is central to a church, the church is actively seeking to bring reconciliation when there's division. So is the gospel ultimate in your life right now? When you look at your relationships? Is the cross ultimate in our faith family, where we care so much more about gospel issues than we do secondary issues. He is our peace, and He has destroyed the wall of hostility. But Paul goes even deeper here to say, not just that He purchased our unity on the cross because He forgave the sin that divided us, but He actually gives us a whole new identity He doesn't just give us unity, he gives us a new identity. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create, here it is, in himself one new man, in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Listen, when, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and receive reconciliation to God and reconciliation to our, to other brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to see we have a whole new identity than we did before. Or let me say it this way. You're not a Jewish Christian. You're not a Gentile Christian. You're not a white Christian. You're not a black Christian. You're not an educated Christian. You're not an uneducated Christian. You are a Christian. Regardless of what language you speak or color you are or background you have. Your identity is no longer your past. Your identity is now union with Christ. Now, that has tremendous implications because when we understand that, and I'm getting really excited about this, when we understand that, we recognize that we are all equal in Jesus. See, the Apostle Paul here says that what Jesus did is he abolished the law. What does that mean? The very thing that the Jews used to feel superior and made the Gentiles feel inferior, the law... Jesus came and fulfilled it, which meant this. There was no room to say, I'm better than anybody else or I'm worse than anybody else. Let me put it to you this way. What is it in your life that you tend to think makes you a little better than other people? We all do that to some degree. You know, it's, it's the money that I have. It's, it's the, the, the status that I have. It's the, the morality. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done a lot of bad things. But, but listen, the gospel says that you were such a sinner, God had to die for you. How can you be superior to anybody? You tracking with me? But on the other hand, what are those things that make you feel inferior? I'm not as attractive as other people. I don't have the money that other people have. Pastor, I have a past that is so messed up. The best I could ever be is a second-class citizen. The gospel says to you, God loved you so much he died for you. How could you feel inferior? Do you see? The cross leaves us with whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are male or female, whether you are slave or free, we are all equal in Jesus Christ because he has fulfilled whatever makes you feel superior or whatever makes you feel inferior. Our differences then are no longer a cause to just tolerate It's a reason to celebrate. Because when we see the unity of God's people coming together with all their likes and dislikes and all their differences, we don't just see unity. We see the essence of Christianity. That's a beautiful thing. And that's something you won't get with the rewards program at Best Buy. Only the church offers this. Because only in the church are you coming face to face with the power of reconciling grace. 
Now, what some of us would say, but yeah, but if I associate with people that aren't like me, well, then I won't have the church that I want. To which my response is, yeah, and that's actually the whole point. Because the church is not an affinity group. It's not a special interest group. It's a whole new humanity. It's a whole new humanity. I'm, I'm already in trouble. Why not get in a little more, right? I hope a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, we're more uncomfortable than we are right now. Because the gospel isn't about creating an atmosphere where we're comfortable. You, you can't see the beauty of this unity with people who aren't like you without a rub. It may be the more uncomfortable we are, the more we're getting the application of the gospel right. If you're not seeking relationships among people who are not like you, you need to recheck your belief in the gospel because at the core of the gospel is the bringing together of people who have nothing in common. The grace of God changes forever how you relate to other people. Amen? Church is a big deal, isn't it? Well, the problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. The result is this one new identity, this unity. But then notice, and we don't have a lot of time, I'll just rapid fire these, the picture that this unity displays. There are four images Paul gives us here of when the church is unified the way, or they're maintaining that unity that they have in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And the first is we see in verse 18, the Trinity. For through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. This is awesome, man. One of the things that when, when we're saying the cross is central, Jesus is ultimate, not me, and we're unified in that, people look at what's taking place in this church and say, that's not of this world. Because it's not. It's a unity far greater than just us. It's the unity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. And it might even be through our unity and love for one another that a lost and dying world looks at us and says, maybe there is a God. Because that's so strange, it can't be produced by human effort. There is a picture, and granted, it's not perfect in any of these pictures, but there's a picture of the unity of the church that displays the unity of God. It's also a picture of heaven. In verse 19, he talks about you were strangers, but now you're fellow citizens. In other words, you belong to a new kingdom. You're no longer of the world. You're now of the kingdom of God, which means this. And listen again, I know we're not perfect. I know we don't get this right all the time. But there ought to be a taste of our unity that prepares us for heaven. That would have us say deep within our soul, I could do that for eternity. 
It's not perfect. It'll be even better when that day comes. But man, we see that glimpse. We see that that glimmer of the unity of the body of Christ that we will experience in fullness for eternity and say, I'd love to have more, more of that. And what it ought to mean is that people walk in from a broken world and they see something of the kingdom that is to come. The third picture is that of family. He goes on to say at the end of verse 19 that you were without God, but now you're members of the household of God, which means, and listen, I know some of you come from very difficult family backgrounds. We all come from dysfunctional families to some degree, and so we don't really understand what family's ultimately about always. And yet what we see in the unity of the church is what it means to be family, what it means to belong to one another. When my kids were young, um, Audrey and Caleb, Caleb's my oldest, and Caleb took Audrey's toy and ran away, and my daughter just cried and wept and ran down the hall into her room, and Daddy went in there to just console her and comfort her. She's sitting on the bed trying to gain composure and stop crying, and she looks at me and she goes, Daddy, we're just going to have to give Caleb away. To which I said, Audrey, 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 we cannot give Caleb away. We can sell him, but we're not giving him away. I mean, we're just not going to give him away. What I had to explain to her is as, as frustrated as you are with him, as angry as you are at him right now, he's your brother. He's blood. And when you look around this place and you see people who aren't like you, and it's easy to isolate yourself from them, what you need to remember is that they, if they are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, they're blood. But the blood that's flowing through our veins is not our own. It was the blood that dripped from the cross of Calvary. That's family, that's belonging. And the last picture he gives is that the picture of a holy temple in verse 21 and 22. Temple representing the presence of God, where the presence of God dwells. Meaning, listen, it is when the body of Christ comes together in unity and makes the cross and the work of Jesus central. The presence of God comes in power. And we experience Him. Hear me. This has been the essence of part of the whole series. We experience God in a way we could never do alone. It's a temple where the presence of God dwells. And so if the unity of the church is so important, then why don't we unite? If the power and presence of God shows up when the body of Christ is one, then why are you seeking to unplug yourself from the outlet that is the church? 
Because there's things we can only experience together and we can only display and enjoy together. And so I just want to say to you in terms of application, one, make sure that the church is central to your life. In a culture where 81% of the people would say you can be right with God and have nothing to do with the local church, I want this to be a people of the God that stands up and says the Bible says you're 100% wrong. The church is a big deal. And number two, I want the gospel to be central because we don't have a shot at maintaining unity if the gospel doesn't remain front and center in everything we do. And number three, dear friends, number three, dear friends, make sure Jesus is central to your life because you are without hope, without him. Repent this morning and trust Him as your Savior and surrender your life to Him. What brings us together? Why are we here? That's a really important question, not just for a six-year-old boy, but for a local church. And I can't speak for octopuses and hairy bugs, but I can speak for us. What brings us together is not that we are attracted to one another, but we've been drawn to Christ. It is not that we have first loved one another. It is that He has first loved us. And look here, Brian, it's not because we have all that much in common. It's because we have Jesus in common. And that's enough. Let's pray. There are some of you this morning with head bowed, eyes closed. There are some of you this morning, there are relationships in your life that you need to apply the gospel to right now. You need to be pursuing reconciliation. You need to be offering forgiveness. How is God speaking to you? Others of you, you're disconnected from the body of Christ and the word of God is calling you this morning to unite, to see the beauty that is the people of God and to be one. Father, there are many other ways I'm sure that you are speaking to us. I pray even calling some out who don't know Christ as Savior to see the beauty of his work on the cross for sin. God, whatever it is, would you draw us now to yourself and would you... Lift up Christ to be the most important one in our life. Because when that's right, everything else falls in place. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen.